Welcome to Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio, where we explore pathways to health for self, society, and the planet. We are home to a range of voices, as there is no single roadmap for meeting the challenges of our times. Tune in each week to expand your perspective, deepen your attention, and cultivate practices that support personal, communal, and global health. Thank you for joining us on this journey. Now, here's your host, Welcome, everyone. I hope you are all well. I'm Rochelle McLaughlin, and I'm here with my fabulous co-host and dear friend, Dr. Bio Akomalafe of the Emergence Network. And we want to welcome you to Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio for this final episode of this amazing three-part series with the extraordinary Dr. Letty Mendoza-Strobel on learning how to dwell in a place, a practice in decolonization. And if you missed part one or two of this series, it's available on demand and it's downloadable for you right here on Voice America's Health and Wellness Channel. Our guest, Dr. Lenny Strobel, is Professor of American Multicultural Studies at Sonoma State University. She is also one of the founding directors of the Center for Violent Studies, a nonprofit organization seeking to facilitate the process of decolonization and re-indigenization, specifically among Filipinos in the diaspora. Dr. Strobel is also teaches a year-long course with Dr. Jurgen Kramer on decolonizing whiteness through the the exploration of an ethno-autobiography process that centers indigenous paradigms. And you can find out more info on Dr. Strobel's work at LennyStrobel.com. And before we get started with our conversation today, I'm thrilled to tell you that our next issue of Revolutionary Wellness Magazine is published, and it's online at RevolutionaryWellnessMagazine.com, and it is free for you, as always. And Dr. Bio Komalafa is the featured contributor for this issue, and he has a momentous and encouraging message for us all as we trouble ourselves with these challenging times. There are also other incredible essays and articles by Dr. Frederick Apfel Marglin of the Sachamama Center for Biocultural Regeneration, Dr. Rodney and Janice Dietert, they are authors of the, the Human Superorganism, and Les Jensen, author of the book Citizen King, and also a beautiful piece by poet and nonviolent communication educator Rochelle Lamb. And there are other artists and change agents of integrity featured in this issue, so you'll definitely want to check out, check it out, and share it with your friends because this is how we can create meaningful change in the world by supporting and amplifying the messages of such wise teachers. So welcome once again, dear Tita, Lenny, and Bio. Thank you both so much for being here with us. Morning, Rochelle. Good morning, Bio. Good evening, Tita. Good evening, Rochelle. <laughs> Great to be here from Thanks. India. So wonderful to have you both. Thank you so much for being here with us all. And so in preparing for this conversation, it's, it struck me how white privilege is such an enormous part of Western society's worldview and how, you know, and just sort of sitting with it and how dense it feels as I explore the depths of the, the forces of white privilege Um, in my own life and how I experience it playing itself out in my daily life and in our culture and societal structures that keep colonization in its place. And in 
Annie Levin's most recent Precipice episode on Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio, she interviewed Suppressed History's archives expert and author Max Deschew. And I'd love to share an excerpt of a quote by Max from the interview to offer her statement as a a place for us to stand as we begin our conversation today as it relates to white privilege. And Max says, in North America, the price of becoming the dominant cultural group is to sign on for whiteness. Whiteness was a very crucial axis of the racial caste system in the United States. A lot of people don't want to relate to being white. They say white is not who I am. But it isn't, in fact, the whole truth. Whiteness is a political category as part of this racialized caste system. And in order for you to exist, you have to recognize that this politics is the defining political, economic, social reality in North America. And we have to hold the hard truth of the way that whiteness operates, how it involuntary assigns honor and privilege to whole groups of people. And at the same time, to see that the price of that was a cultural deprivation of, of immigrant families where the parents had to give up their culture to become generic white American, and that was a loss. And Max goes on, and I definitely, you know, urge everyone to listen to the archived episode, but I wonder if, um, dear Tita Lenny, if you would like to speak to the significance of our collectively becoming aware of the forces of white privilege in our society, why is this so important to the process of decolonization? Thank you for that quote from Max Dashu, and um, it's a really good way to start this conversation, Rochelle. Uh, The idea of white privilege, um, in my case, came to my attention through the work of Peggy McIntosh. Um, I think it was in the late 70s where she published her list of uh, privileges as a white woman. And that has since become kind of canonical, you know, in terms of whiteness studies. But the notion of white privilege being questioned and being called out, um, from what I know, uh, started with the feminist movement, uh, where when, when invoking global sisterhood, it was the women of color that began to raise the, the racial question. Uh, what does it mean to be white in in the feminist movement amongst um, women of color and how, what does it mean to be inclusive. And, and so um, there, were, there have been many, many books now written on whiteness and, 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 and white privilege. And I think the importance of this has to do with the recognition that under colonization, uh, there are two sides of it. On the other hand, you have the victims of oppression, victims of of colonial violence. But on the other hand, if colonization itself is violent, then it also affects the perpetrator. So the the calling out of white privilege is to call attention to the ways in which white supremacy damages white folks. And, And I think that is where healing begins is it begins with the recognition of not just of the victims uh, and, and, and how they've been marginalized or discriminated against and racialized, but also on the other side, uh, where the system has privileged and given advantages to, to white folks. And, and it's been good 
in the sense that um, books now have been written on how the Irish became white and how um, all the ethnic, all the white folks that came from Western Europe and Eastern Europe during the time of the Great Migration to this country, of how they've had to then give up all of the ethnic, um, ethnic attributes, their religion, their languages, their customs, their beliefs and attitudes in order to be assimilated into the dominant white Anglo-Saxon Protestant value system. And um, so in a way, all of us have been whitened by this system. Uh, and, and for us to recognize how that has happened historically and how it continues to be perpetuated is asking all of us to learn how to talk about this in the open, out in the open. Um, most lately, uh, Robin DiAngelo, another uh, professor who has been talking about white privilege, coined the term white fragility and, and calling attention to the difficulty that white folks have in talking about this system. And, and I think um, that's also a good signal uh, or invitation for for. Uh, everybody to participate in this conversation, but there is a way of doing it so that we don't get mired into into the place of blame or the place of shame, and that there is a way out. And that is where the process of decolonization and re-indigenization for me uh, becomes really um, a place where we can then reconnect with our larger sense of self and with our larger sense of inclusion and with the larger sense of, of the world that we live in. But I know that when I start talking that way, it sounds, it, it begins to sound abstract. Mm-hmm. But, um, but the invitation to, to um, mourn together the losses under colonialism, to begin to learn how to do rituals of grief, breathing, and, and to begin to recognize and acknowledge the losses under colonialism and to begin to also uh, look at this as shadow material in need of acknowledgement and healing is, is where um, this is asking us to go. Yes, I appreciate, you know, just sort of naming how it can feel very abstract. And at the same time, I, I, um, I know you'll be speaking with Bio about a, a course that you're going to be offering. Um, so there are really practical, you know, ways for us to begin these conversations and the work around it. And I wonder, um, maybe Bio, if you'd like to speak to that. Um, thank you, Rochelle. Um, can you hear me? Is yes. Great. Um, so thank you, Tita, for just laying the grounds that way. Wonderful libation of words, and um, I, I would say for me it's been real. It's there's nothing quite abstract in mm-hmm. what Tita has said um, about whiteness and normativity and white fragility. I experienced it. I, I would just like to speak from the perspective, uh, from my own um, perspective, in terms of being a growing up African child um, that was exposed to. Um, whiteness quite early and not quite recognizing it for what it is, but learning to see myself as, um, I would use the term ontologically deficient because I didn't quite measure up to a standard 
that was imposed on me through my education, through the religion that was pervasive in um, southwestern Nigeria and most of Nigeria, in fact. Um, so um, my own first literary or intellectual encounter was reading Chinua Achebe, who wrote the book um, Things Fall Apart. And Chinua Achebe writes about the, the he, 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 he dreams up, well, it's not exactly fictional, but he talks about a town in eastern Nigeria called Umohia, a pre-colonial town where everyone was in sensuous contact with the ground. They knew their yams, they wrestled in the morning, they had wars, they had their own ways of being alive. They had language, they had history, they had their thoughts, and they had their own confusion and their own misdeeds as well. And then all of a sudden, the white man comes into the picture and he comes in with his ship and he comes in with his trading instruments. And then he basically says in one um, fell swoop that you don't have a history, that everything that you think you are is only uh, a manner of waiting for us to arrive. All your histories, your educational rituals, your spiritualities are lacking because in a sense you're three-fifths of what men should be or what women should be. And Achebe writes it in simple prose, the simplest prose, just unraveling the normal. And I grew up in that sensibility of, of noticing that I was in uh, a contrived environment, that what I had taken to be the familiar, normal life that was available to everyone who cared to be seen um, was actually false, if you will, or was actually made up. Um, so in, in a sense, in a manner of speaking, I came to understand whiteness by examining my blackness, if you will, by seeing it through the lenses of something that had been used to interrupt my culture. Um, I still tell others that I don't speak my language today because I still feel at some deep subconscious level that speaking it is uh, is partaking in a lesser culture, in something that is not quite up to par. And speaking English well and learning new words in English is the way to go because that's the globalized um, sacredness we're speaking about today. But in a sense, uh, Achebe is not, uh, reading Achebe wasn't, at least this is something I learned in retrospect, it wasn't just about calling out white people and saying um, whiteness is evil and let's stamp it out of the earth because that would be the mistake. That would be a perpetuation of Euro-American or Judeo-Christian sensibilities that the world can easily be passed between good and evil or black and white. I think a, a greater or deeper invitation uh, in Achebe's work, for instance, and in the works of people that I have been engaged in, including Tita, uh, Lenny Strobel, uh, the, I think the deeper invitation here is to learn that whiteness itself is a denunciation of other colors. It's a, it's a rejection of other ways of being in the world. And that may appear to 
very strong-minded activists as evil or something that should be done away with. I don't think it's evil. I don't think whiteness or white normativity or white supremacy is evil in itself. I just feel it's a performance of the world that cuts out a lot of the abundance of the world around us. It cuts out the ways we can be together without depending on cities. It cuts out so much of the world and installs in it a tired, cold, icy, stoic way of of framing economy or framing politics and it's exhausting and i feel the just like history teaches us that whiteness was actually a thing that people signed up to especially for the immigrants that were coming in and the more light-skinned ones were sold this american dream that you can join the gang if you will um i feel there is a sense in which we're being called today to notice that uh uh Maybe there are other places of power. Maybe there are other spaces of co-enacting our community or, or thinking about education or thinking about what it means to be alive or thinking about what it means to be in a relationship that has, been, that has not been touched by whiteness. Maybe we can invent, reinvent identity. Maybe we could go back to, I don't want to say go back to source. Maybe we can reinvent source and, and speak again about these things and uh, I, I said I started out by saying it's real to me. Nothing about it is abstract because I took the step uh, on my decolonial path of walking out of uh, the uh, statutory university system and seeking a life that was small and intimate and wanting to be with my daughter against the fray, wanting to learn how to be in place against the imperative of becoming larger and popular and famous. Um, so I'll stop there for now. Thank you, Bile. It's beautiful. Yeah, go ahead, Tita. Yeah, well, um, in, in connecting with what Bio is saying about how whiteness erases all the, the differences and the diversity, mm-hmm. um, I think of my experience of coming to the United States. And when I first came, I was telling myself, I bring all these gifts from my culture. You know, I come from a culture where kapwa is a core value and, and kapwa means intersubjectivity in, or interconnectedness. And, and, and there's this sense of joy and laughter and, and just knowing how to connect sensuously and, and intimately with strangers and including everybody. So I, I was coming from, I realized now that that was the indigenous part of me is that I still knew and had these values in my bones. But when I came here, I had all these gifts and I put them up on the wall and put them away because nobody wanted them. Mm. You know, so, um, for example, I would go next door and offer them, you know, something that I had just cooked because that is what my mother does. You know, you cook something, Mm. you take it to your neighbor to share. And I would share things with neighbors and, there was no reciprocation and, and <laughs> were surprised why I, why I would do things like that. So I made me put all of my gifts in the back burner, so to speak. But as I did that, then something also kept dying within me. And so I needed to go back to school to unlearn or to relearn uh, my own indigenous ways of being and to see them as something worthy and to see myself as whole instead of just being this colonial subject. And 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 it took a long time. It 
for me to get to this place where I can I can claim my wholeness, where I can say I have unwhitened myself, you know, and where I can say that within my marriage to a white man that we have both been working on undoing whiteness inside our marriage. And that has um, given us a place to to heal ourselves together, so to speak, you know. Uh, because there was a time when people would say and remark to me, well, if you are doing all this decolonial work, why are you still sleeping with the enemy? You know. And, <laughs> and, and even in our relationship, we, we had to work through those things, those tensions of, you know, uh, of how whiteness appears in our relationship. How it comes up in our attitude about this life that we are crafting together. Um, and then it came to a point where he began to see and he began to say, you know, he says, the work that you do is larger than the marriage. It's larger than our marriage and I'm going to support you. And, and I knew then that that was the moment when I knew I could stay married to a white man. You know, so, so this is kind of like the intimate personal way of dealing with, with the issue of whiteness um, in, in, in my public life, in my academic life, when, when um, I talk about whiteness and we start teasing out all of these ways in which whiteness manifests in, in the way we think, in what we believe, in, in, because everything, like all the knowledge of, of, that we imbibe through the canon of our Western education, um, it, it really doesn't, well, sometimes we call it neoliberalism as an ideology that dominates everything now globally. But um, when the students begin to see it from that framework of, of how life can be so diverse and, and, and how this diversity has been erased or silenced, um, they begin to sense their own losses under colonialism and under, under white supremacy or, or, or that they couldn't even now enjoy this sense of privilege because they know it has been given to them without being earned, you know, and that it has been given to them without having to do anything about it. Um, I'll give you an example. I was uh, teaching a class and this white man um, was very upset that I was bringing up this topic of white privilege and he said, you know, I have worked hard all my life to be able to get to where I am because I was born poor, because I was, uh, because I'm ugly, look at my pot belly and, and, and so on and so forth. And then, because he was sort of in a, he was in a teacher credentialing program and he was trying to change careers and so he was in his midlife. So he was very upset with me. And I said, but John, when you enter a class of second and third graders, what do they see? What do they see? And I said, until you tell them the story of how hard your life has been, they would only see you as a white male. And white male is a representation of something in this larger society that, that means to them that white is dominant, white is powerful, males are this and so on. And, and then when he heard me say that, he said, well, I thought you just didn't like me. You know? And it wasn't about liking him or not liking him. It was I wanted him to see what representation does and, and racial representation, the power of racialized representations does to, 
to people um, that may not know us personally, you know. So it the in 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 the ethno autobiography work that I do with you, then we emphasize the importance of telling stories, telling our stories of who our ancestors are, where they came from, how they came to this country, what made them leave their homeland, and so on. And and then you have all of these stories of migration, and the and the students begin to hear each other's story, and there is no competition in those stories. It's just the the compassionate listening and then being able to see how those stories are connected together, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, um, one of my students who identified at the beginning of the semester as Mexican, um, at the end of the semester, he said, uh, "I realized that I'm not really Mexican. I am Mayan." He was. What that means is he was able to do his ancestral work and ancestral lineage to where he could see that his identity go all the way back to pre-colonial history. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's powerful when we begin to understand our lineage, our ancestral lineage, and how we begin to uh, connect very deeply. And And I think that is for a lot of the white students that is very, very difficult to do because precisely in becoming American, in the process of Americanization, they were told to disconnect from those things. So that is where the sense of loss and sense of grief comes in very often in this work. Um, So we work through the grief. And another example was this white student, white female student began asking herself, how they have gotten this piece of land in Northern California. They have a big ranch. And he says, I wonder now, I wonder now how we ended up owning that land. Who did we displace? Who were the, uh, who were the indigenous peoples who were there before we claimed it? So they begin to see that connection. Or another student who said, well, my ancestors were white supremacists in the South, and I've never told anybody about this. This is the first time I'm revealing it in public. So for people to, for, or for white students to be able to express and tell these stories that they have hidden, it, there is a sort of a release that happens when we acknowledge that, that material, that shadow material that has been lurking there. Because... In the same way that I have been felt, I have felt ashamed as a little brown woman, a colonial subject of the United States, so do white students also then feel the shame of feeling disconnected and having been miseducated in a way. Um, And I think hopefully we are seeing in in younger students and and this younger generation that, that the because many of them are now mixed race, you know, and interracial marriages are very fairly common now in major cities around the world, Um, that there's this generation that understands this history and they know they don't want to repeat it and they know they don't want to perpetuate white supremacy and so on. So they're beginning to to sign out of that contract, so to speak, by by, um, dating or marrying people across ethnic boundaries, across racial lines. So um, I think for me, that's where the work is also being done, you know. But um, 
I also hear from a lot of folks who are, who are interracially married, who grapple with, with racial dynamics inside the marriage and, and uh, to the extent that families or the couple hasn't, haven't done the decolonization work, then that is where it gets perpetrated. So decolonization, white privilege, white fragility, all of these concepts are interconnected. And in my work, um, we add the concept of re-indigenization because we believe that all of us at one point or another came from ancestral roots in a particular place on the planet. So um, our stories of displacement, our stories of dislocation then gets connected into this larger story or that, that became political, that became economic, that became judicial, and so part of the system that, that we now live in. And so when Bio talks about walking out of that system and reimagining other places of power, I think that is where we're, there's this movement, you know, whether it's the de-schooling movement or whether it's the new and ancient story movement, there are people that are beginning to unpack all of these systems um, and, and then creating or um, recreating other places where we can honor all of our beautiful selves and beautiful differences. Mm. Well, it is time to take a short break, but before we go, I'd love to share an excerpt from Back from the Crocodile's Belly, Philippine Babylon Studies and the Struggle for Indigenous Memory, edited by Lily Mendoza and Lenny Mendoza Strubble. Uh, Dr. Lenny Mendoza Strobel says, indeed, indigenous worldviews are affirming of the fact that there are remarkably diverse ways of being human on the planet, and it is this diversity that needs to be recuperated as an antidote to the homogenizing logic of modernity. And we will be right back after these messages. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. In these times of converging crisis, the world needs us now more than ever before. Revolutionary Wellness Magazine is devoted to amplifying inspiring voices, facing challenging realities head on, opening up new places of power, and inviting curiosity about the paths we might take toward personal, communal, and global health. The magazine aspires to help us become the change we wish to see in the world, co-creating the more beautiful world we know to be possible. Join us on this journey. Log on and subscribe to Revolutionary Wellness Magazine today at revolutionarywellnessmagazine.com. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. What causes us to be sick? We're not talking about the actual illness or the scientific cause of illnesses. We're talking about your body and health. Listen for the healing whisper of return to peace. 
Each week, host Dr. Marianne Chase shows you how to listen to your heart to identify poor health, stress, and disease. You'll learn how to heal energetically and spiritually, as well as physically. It's time to depend less on the drugs and more on the heart. The Healing Whisper airs live every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health & Wellness. listening to Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio. Our hosts are clinicians of mind and body medicine and lifestyle change. They are writers, activists, educators, and change agents. You can reach the show and our hosts at experiencerevolutionarywellness.com. Now, back to our show. Welcome back, everyone. My co-host, Dr. Bio Akomolafe, is Chief Curator and Executive Director of the Emergence Network. Bio and his work were featured in a three-part series here on Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio in January, and you can access those episodes on demand any time that you would like. And Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio's Precipice series is brought to you by the Emergence Network as well. Bio has an extraordinary book being published called These Wilds Beyond Our Fences, Letters to My Daughter on Humanity's Search for Home. I urge you to pre-order your copy on Amazon. And Bio has an upcoming course called We Will Dance with the Mountains that is open to everyone. And um, we'll talk with Bio about this course in just a few minutes. And you can access the course at course.bioacomalafe.net. That's course.bioacomalafe.net. And our guest today, Dr. Lenny Strobel, is the director and founder of the Center for Babylon Studies. It's a nonprofit organization focusing on Filipino indigenous knowledge systems and practices with specific focus on Babylon discourse and Filipino psychology. And the mission is to connect with resources and to facilitate the relevance, cultivation, cultivation and promotion of Filipino indigenous w- wisdom in an age of globalization. And I'd love to share uh, another quote by Dr. Strobel from her beautiful book, Babylon, Filipino, Filipinos and the Call of the Indigenous. She says, it is said that to awaken to critical consciousness, it is not enough to see and grieve what is wrong with the world. One needs also to fall in love. And it's a segue for your work, Bio, just having the honor of getting to know you and your inspiring work over the course of this past year. It seems to me that your life and your work is an act of love, in, in, including this course that you have coming up that you'll be um, you know, having um, Tita Lenning with you on. And yeah. I just, there's an excerpt on, the, on your website. It says that the course is about co-nurturing practices, rituals, understandings, performances, inquiries, and ways of seeing that contribute to a different politics of possibility. So I was hoping you'd share about this 
course and how we can connect with it and participate. Great. It's, I think that's just a fancy way of saying we're, we're, we're coming back to, to the earth. We're coming down to earth and we're trying to fall in love with the planet again. And in a sense, if you come to think about it with the influences that um, characterized the Enlightenment and the Renaissance and modernity and post-modernity, it has always been about escape, which, which might seem abstract and fluffy, but it's actually substantive. Um, that in a sense, whiteness is about escape. It's about... Um, uh, you know, seeking to transcend the colors, if you will, mm. seeking some kind of universalism that applies everywhere. So that, in a sense, when you hear people today say, oh, I don't see any color, it's it's a symptom. It's a symptom of that uh, deep conditioning um, to flatten terrains and to mm. see everywhere as uh, basically the same or trying to be the same to standardize the world. But if we saw the world as bumpy and groovy and having precipices and uh, corners and and parts that we can never even approach, talk less of understanding, then, um, then I think decolonization is about coming down to it and learning to live within and in the middle of it. It's learning to partner with the earth instead of trying to transcend it as modernity tries to do. It's it's learning to listen to the ground. It's learning to be at one with the tides and the seasons, which is what indigenous cultures are about. It's, it's basically accounting for ourselves. And the work that Tita Strobel has been doing over time, whether it's in the classroom or through her center of Babylon studies, is basically calling for that accounting of oneself. Um, with uh, with Dr. Jurgen Kremer, the the ethno autobiographical process is basically about inviting, and maybe Tita, we could segue and speak about how we've just done something around the uh, I forget what it is. It, you remind me, um, Tita, are you there? Yeah, which? Yeah, the uh, the 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 process we're trying to do together, three of us, the. Uh, project we're embarking on together of the humanities, the national humanities uh, of the United States. I, I forget the exact terminology because I don't live there. We haven't heard about that grant proposal yet, but what uh, Yes, it is a grant proposal, yeah, yes. What we're proposing there is to be able to train community college and state college um, and college faculty to learn how to use the ethno-autobiographical process in their classrooms. Right. And Jürgen right. recently also started to do that now for, I think, um, K to 12 or nine or grades 9 to 12, how to do it at the high school level. Mm. Yes. And, mm. and that is so important to this process of, of learning and decolonizing whiteness is to be able to introduce a process, a very specific process for um, doing doing the work of re-indigenization and decolonizing whiteness, because it's, we um, the work provides very specific, concrete steps that people can do. On right. Their, yeah. And yeah. Right. 
right? So, so it's 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 basically, it's in a sense finding the roots of self, mm-hmm. um, and 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 seeing that the self that ghost within the machine of modern imagination is not is not um, is not shriveled up. It's not a shriveled up entity that has no connection with planet, with place, with community, with food, with hospitality. It, it's or with sacredness, you know, all the paradigms that we're ensconced in seem to tell us that we need to reach out to love another person. You need to reach out to the other person to be good and holy. You have to reach out to uh, reach out beyond the physical realm and tap into the spiritual realm. But basically, the process of reindigenization is noticing that we are here, and here is what counts. Um, the sacred is here. The sacred is in my food and how I share it with you. Um, and that's our place of power. This is the place of power uh, of accounting for oneself, noticing the, the, the prestige uh, and the historicity of self, its roots and its performativity over time. And accounting for that is really the work of decolonization, the way I see it. So the course that I'm privileged to be hosting alongside with uh, Professor Strobel and Jurgen Kremer and a wonderful woman that I know we met together, Rochelle, mm-hmm. Isoke, Isoke mm-hmm. Femi. Wonderful. And, uh, and, uh, and uh, another lady from South Africa who founded a sustainability institute and has been doing marvelous work on new activisms, which is not just a fancy way of saying we are improving on what we've done before, but we're rethinking what it means to be, to act and respond in times of crisis. So the course is really about bringing these emergent strands and these discourses and this uh, ways of seeing and bringing it together and inviting people into a place of sanctuary, if you will. And sanctuaries are not what we get. We, we don't get sanctuaries in this, in this age. Uh, in this time, spaces where we can literally slow down or scream out, if you will. I guess the only place that still exists, but even though it's commercialized, is in the psychiatrist uh, ward or in the psychologist room. But basically, um, what we're trying to create using virtual, uh, using the virtual world, the internet and those tools, is to invite people into a a place of stillness, a, a precipice, if you will, an edge where they can sit still where they can listen, where we can support one another, where we can be allies, and where we can engage practices that shift our ways of seeing and open up other senses that may be dormant right now. Um, here's a beautiful anecdote. Uh, I read recently, and I don't know if I've shared this on this show before, but I read recently that uh, a, a variation of the color blue has just been invented. And, and that was remarkable to me, you know, I've always thought about, I've always thought, played a game with my daughter that imagine a color that doesn't exist. And, and we try to give it a name. We come up with crazy names. But to imagine a color is difficult because there's nothing to go by, right? And this same study that talked about the invention of a new variation of blue spoke about um, the fact that in ancient times, blue wasn't even in existence. I don't mean there weren't blue skies or blue things, but there was no word or language for, for blue. And so people just came up with terms that was close to it. It was only until some time later that people, especially in ancient Kemet, Egypt, 
came up with the word for blue and blue became familiar. So in a sense, I asked the question, and this is foundational to the course, what colors are we not seeing right now? What, what realities are we, have we lost touch with? Um, and what if we connect with these realities and these possibilities? Um, what do they do to our current understandings and performances of economy and politics and education and, you know, being with one another and community and neighborliness? What does it do to our understandings of work or what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman? What does it do if we reconsider or take a quantum leap and reconsider where we stand in the web of life? What does it mean to come down to earth? to recognize that we have always been in the middle and we've never been modern after all. Uh, what does it mean to account for the many colors that are always and have always been part of whiteness? Uh, what does it mean to disabuse our minds that whiteness is colorless or has no history or has no prestige or just appeared spontaneously out of the blue? Um, this, these are the questions and the inquiries that would inform the weird practices that we'll be engaging through a nine-week um, expedition to the edges and where we'll be sitting still under the tutelage of uh, Jürgen Kramer, Tita here, Isoke, and uh, um, Eve Aniki of the Sustainability Institute in South Africa. And I'm so glad to be part of it. And how can people um, sign up? When, when will this happen? Oh, it's uh, it, the, the course begins September 16th and runs bi-weekly, every Saturdays, all through, well, there's a site for it. It's, as Rochelle has said, mm-hmm. course.bioacomalafia.net. All the details are there. It runs all the way to December 2nd, and uh, the registration is basically open right now. You just visit the site. If you feel a deep calling to slow down in times of urgency, uh, then maybe this course is for you. It definitely will not improve your CV. It, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's not something you want, you're going to want to quote on a CV and say, I engage in this course. But maybe that's the idea. Maybe we are at our wit's end and we are at a place of collective not knowing. And maybe this is a good place. It's a good place to fall apart. Um, uh, in, where I come from, we say... Things fall apart in order for things to rise again. Um, I, I think we need to fall apart collectively. I think we need to grieve collectively. I think we need to to withhold our arguments and our endorsements uh, and and retreat into a place where we can be restitched for the next. In a sense, we're being enlisted for things that we don't know how to name yet, um, and and maybe. Um, coming to, to spaces like these, which, and this course is not the only one. There are many courses like this, and I'm, and I'm constantly baffled to see how people are prolific and, and amazing at generating marvelous spaces like these. Well, this course is one of the humble offerings um, in recuperation, and I invite everyone to be part of it. Tita, just to kind of bring us back around, um, you mentioned that whiteness shows up in our relationship to everything. And what um, Bio is describing is just, you know, a way to um, to really explore this and how we can um, work around and with, and I'm not sure the word dismantling is coming to me, but it seems a little um, strong. But can you speak 
to this just to bring us back um, around to the, the aspect of whiteness? Actually, one of the best books that I have used in my classes is entitled Dismantling Privilege. Okay. <laughs> That's great. Sexual privilege, uh, gender privilege, racial privilege, and so on. So that's a very good book. Um, <laughs> thank you for this series, Rochelle, and, and for um, your courage and strength of your yeah. to bring out this topic in, into your radio series because... Um, it is a difficult topic, but I think it is also something that the time that that its time has come for it to come out of the shadows and and for all of us to um, not feel too fragile around it mm-hmm. and and not to feel embarrassed, um, but to also acknowledge the great sense of disconnection that it has created between peoples, between people of color and, and co- white communities and and all the violence that that creates, that disconnection creates. And, and so it is a call to heal. It is a call to grieve. It is a call to mourn. And because we don't have, as a culture in, in the United States, we really don't have rituals of mourning or ceremonies of uh, mourning uh, in order to honor this work, I think we need to create those spaces. And so what Michael and his network is is creating are those spaces where we can co-create rituals of mourning, rituals of gratitude, rituals of uh, that honor the earth and our connection to it and, and, um, and make it beautiful. And I was I I was reading a very beautiful essay um, on the High Country News last night about the Dark Mountain Project, and it talks about a poet in the early 1900s that was already writing about civilizational collapse and how his poetry, this Robert Jeffers, uh, his poetry is full of uh, sadness about. The, the ecocide that he was witnessing even during that time. But always, always, his poetry always pointed to the importance of seeing beauty. And and I saw this in Bio's work, and that is what attracted me to him. I, I see it in my connection with you, Rochelle, as you tended to Bio when he was here. I see it in, in the communities that we are creating, in, in, in the relationships that we are nurturing. And so even as I have slowed down and, and tried um, to develop my own practices of learning how to dwell in place, and I don't feel at all that my world has gotten small. In fact, it has gotten very large. But in, in the specificity, specificity of my place, of being rooted in Sonoma County, I know that that gives me the ground and, and the centeredness that I need to be able to do this work. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful for this opportunity to um, just bring a little bit of the work that I do uh, with, and bring it to your audience, Rochelle. It's been such an honor to have you, and your words just um, bring me to tears, actually. It's so beautiful. So thank you so much for, for to you, Dita Lenny, for being here with us. And um, 
it's time for us to, to close. So I, if I may say that our guest for this amazing series has been Dr. Lenny Strobel. She is a professor, an eminent scholar, author, activist, and Babylon inspired woman, and a lot more. She also calls herself a settler and a colonized person, and she has embarked on a long and arduous journey to unlearn 500 years of colonial infer- influence, which has shaped her consciousness and identity. And you can learn more at LennyStrobel.com. So thank you, dear Tita Lenny, for being with us on this three-part decolonization series on Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio. May your voice and your heart continue to be heard and experienced for decades to come as humanity navigates these challenging times and turns toward a more sustainable and soul-inspired existence. Thank you, dear Lenny. Thank you so much, Rochelle. Thank you, Bayou. Aho. Beautiful prayer, Rochelle. And thank you, Tita. And thank you, Bio, for co-hosting this amazing series with me and sharing your copacious heart with the world. I feel deeply grateful to be with you on this journey. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rochelle. I just want to quickly say, Rochelle, that, and maybe not to you, but to the audience, everyone listening in that, Rochelle is a wonderful, wonderful person. Her voice is just as warm as she is in real life. And I am a beneficiary of a marvelous hospitality. And um, I thank you for making this happen for Tita and me. Thank you both. It's, it's been an honor and a great privilege. So thank you so much. And to all of our listeners, tune in next week for the Emergence Network's Precipice series with Annie Levin, where we will be wondering out loud together as we navigate the perplexing ecological, social, economic, and existential realities of our time. It is such a pleasure to be here with you all on Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio. And be sure to log on to revolutionarywellnessmagazine.com and partake in the newest beautiful issue of our magazine. And please do share it with your friends. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us on this journey. Until next time, I'm Rochelle McLaughlin. May you be well and may we all be well. Thank you for opening your heart and mind to new ways of seeing, to greater degrees of compassion, and to pathways to health for our world with Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio. Join us next Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern Time to expand your perspective, deepen your attention, and cultivate practices that support personal, communal, and global health on Voice America's Health and Wellness Channel. 